Today's reading is Jonah, chapter 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarsus. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarsus. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hole. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were all struck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest, and the rest can be seated. Thank you, Ramona, for that reading. That was really helpful. Really appreciate that today. Thank you for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you today as we uh, continue to explore the book of Jonah. And I want to ask you to uh, join me in inviting the Spirit to be present and active as we seek to be attentive to God this morning. So would you pray with me, please? 
Spirit of God, we invite you now. We don't want to assume because we're in a building and we call it a church building that that means that you are present. Uh, We need to invite you. I need to invite you to be present and active in our midst. And I ask specifically that you would use your word, the scripture, um, to speak to us today, that we might encounter you, Father, um, encounter your love, encounter your vision for this world, encounter... um, what it is that you want for us out of that love and out of that care for us that you have. So I thank you for this opportunity to be together, to be exposed to the, to the message of Jonah, and I ask that you would give me enablement that I might be clear um, and that we might sense that you, we have heard from you today. In your name, amen. <clears throat> so last Sunday we began to explore the message of Jonah, the story of Jonah from Scripture, And I introduced it last week with uh, an image from a uh, children's storybook that was read to me as a child, and those images were indelibly impressed upon me. And I, like many other people perhaps who have grown up perhaps exposed to the story of Jonah, have largely associated Jonah with a whale. And... But the problem with that is that there is no whale in the Jonah story. There's a sea creature of sorts, some kind of great fish, and it only appears in three verses. So I went on to suggest to you that the real focus of the story of Jonah is a a man of faith who has a problem with God. That that is the real focus of Jonah, is it's a story about a man of faith who has a problem with God. And as I said last week, that, that is an important place to pause for a moment because it normalizes that, that reality for, for me and perhaps for you that it's possible to be in relationship with God and to have a problem with God. It's possible to be in relationship with God and to be disappointed with God. It's possible to be in relationship with God and to feel distant from God. And quite honestly, to, to not even really want God at times. And I asked last week, can we be that honest as, as people who claim to be Christians that that might be our experience at times with God? <clears throat> Certainly Jonah allows for that as we look at the message of Jonah and we realize here's a man of faith who doesn't really want God. But that still leaves me, that I think it still leaves us with a problem. And here's the problem as I see it. What do you say to people who read this story and say to you, do you really believe that a man can be swallowed by a fish and live inside of it for three days, write Hebrew poetry while inside the fish, because that's chapter two, and then be vomited out on a beach and be alive? Pregnant pause for a reason. Seriously. Do you really believe that? And if you don't, then why do you believe that some Hebrew prophet by the name of Jesus was buried and was raised from the grave after spending three days in the grave? And what do you do with the fact that that same Hebrew prophet Jesus mentions Jonah Three times in the Gospels. Here's one of them. Matthew 12. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what do we do with this? And that's my focus this morning. Because I think it's vital to address this obstacle that often occurs for people who read this text and who might dismiss it as God's word for us still today as they read this Jonah story. Because if I'm suggesting that God still wants to speak to us through this text still today, then it's vital to clarify this. And to do that, I'm suggesting that the question that we need to ask this morning is this. How should we read the Jonah story? How should we read the Jonah story? Well, Jonah is a small book that's tucked away in a a library of books. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Jonah right now. There's a blue one underneath. And as you're picking up that book, that book in your hand is a collection of writings. 66 of them, to be exact. And there are three literary types in the Bible. You see the the graphic behind me? There is narrative. Uh, It makes a point by telling a story. There's poetry. Most of us are familiar with poetry. The Psalms that were... Jake read a psalm to us this morning. That's poetry. And then there's also discourse. Discourse presents a logical sequence of ideas. Think of Paul's letters. He writes these logical... uh, Letters that have the sequence of ideas that he's trying to communicate. So each book of the Bible falls into at least one of those three types of literature. And some contain more than one. And based on a chapter-by-chapter comparison, you can see that narrative is a predominant literary type in the Bible, followed by poetry, and then followed by discourse. In addition to the three major literary types, there are also levels of genres. And a genre is a category of writing that follows certain rules or patterns. Every passage of scripture belongs to one or more literary types and one or more genres of literature. So whenever we open this collection that we have in our hand right here of 66 writings, then we need to ask ourselves, what kind of literature are we reading? What kind of literature are we reading? And this is vital to answer because it shapes what you can expect to take away from your reading. Okay? You with me? So that raises the question, what kind of literature is Jonah? As I said last week, Jonah is a story. So its literary type is narrative. Its genre is both story and poetry because chapter 2 is poetry. Now, if you're following what I just said, you go, well, wait a minute, how, isn't what, narrative and story, aren't they the same thing? Well, let me illustrate it this way. It's like, it's, like talking about, it's like talking about baseball, but you can have softball under baseball, and you can have fast pitch under baseball as well. So you can have narrative, and you can have story un, as a form of narrative as well. So... It's a story, and it's a story about, about a prophet, as I said last week, rather than a typical Old Testament prophecy, which is about God's messenger who delivers a message to Israel. This is the one case that you find in the Old Testament where you have a story about a prophet. Now, some Bible scholars read this as pure historical narrative. 
meaning that it's a real historical account about a real person. As we looked at last week, 2 Kings 14.25 mentions Jonah as a prophet, as a real historical character who really lived. So we know that Jonah really did live according to what we find in 2 Kings 14.25. Jesus also refers to Jonah in Matthew chapter 12 and 16 and Luke 11. So this is a very common view that this would be real historic narrative. But... Other Bible scholars say there's more to this than just pure historical narrative. They suggest that Jonah is a form of narrative parable. Narrative parable. In other words, it's a parable based upon a real historical figure mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. So Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. The writer picks up this, this historical figure and writes a parable about Jonah. Lest you wonder if there's any other precedent for this in Scripture, Jesus picks up the historical figure of Lazarus in Luke 16, and he tells a parable involving a historical figure. So Jesus does the very same thing in the New Testament. Now, you might be sitting out there and going, whoa, 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 dude. Are you telling me are you telling me that this might not be pure historical narrative? The reason why you might not have heard of the second possibility is because we've become attached to reading this story as a story about a man who gets swallowed by a fish. We've largely seen this or heard this story as a man who lives inside of a fish for three days, and then there's the emphasis upon proving that this could happen. And the result is that this then becomes a litmus test for whether you believe in miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus, and also ultimately in the authority of the Bible. So you see what's at stake. For many people, and this is the stream I grew up in, that if you give up this fish story, whether a person can live inside a fish for three days, that ultimately the thinking is you're going to give up the resurrection of Jesus Christ because you don't believe in miracles, and then ultimately you're going to give up the authority of the Bible. It's what's called in kind of Christian language the slippery slope. You give up one, you're going to give up the entire thing. And so we, don't, we just say, I'm just going to screen it out. I'm not going to ask questions like I just asked. But the fish is only three verses, and it's not the main point. As I suggested last week, the main point is that this is a story about a man of faith who has a problem with God. Now, to be clear, I'm on, this is being recorded. So to be clear, (laughs) to be clear, I do believe when you look at the New Testament, and the New Testament writers, the gospel writers talk about Jesus' mighty deeds. Dunamis is the word that's used, not miracles. Jesus' mighty deeds. Jesus raised the dead. He healed the sick. He turned water into wine. I believe the gospel writers when they say that Jesus did that. Okay? Clear? I also believe that there is such a thing as miracles. And I believe the chief one is that God raised Jesus from the dead after being dead for three days. Okay? So just to be clear, I'm not questioning any of that. I'm not, I'm not dropping the resurrection at all. Okay? 
The issue here is whether we will allow the writer of Jonah to show us how to read his writing. Or her, I don't know. And to do that, it requires humility. And let me just say a quick word about that. When you come to the Bible and you want to interpret it, it's not just a case of engaging your mind and um, kind of using some kind of scientific technique to come to it to understand it. It also requires virtue. It requires bringing a type of person to the text. And that type of person is a person who is humble. And that means that we come to the text with an openness to receive what it is that the writer and God himself wants to show us versus us bringing our preconceived notions about what the text must say to us or our own sense of control or autonomy that we pick up that's so pervasive in our culture, we live out of that, we breathe that air 24-7, and then we come to the text and we make demands of God that God would reveal himself a certain way to us from this text, and when he doesn't, we go like, this is worthless. So I'm suggesting that in order to really hear from the author, it requires a certain posture, and that's one of humility. So having said that, the question I raise is, how does the author tell his story? And I'm suggesting that we allow him to tell us. And when you carefully read this text, you'll notice some things that immediately begin to jump out. That's why I've had it read in its entirety last week and had Ramona read the entire first chapter this week. And the more we begin to hear, the more we begin to go, oh yeah, there's something going on here. First of all, if you read the text carefully, you'll notice there are no historical dates. There are no historical dates. When a person is important, the Bible authors typically set them in a context in which there are names and dates. Okay, you have your Bibles open, turn over one page to Micah 1. <clears throat> Probably mo most of us don't spend a lot of time in Micah, but just turn over to Micah 1. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. What's Morasheth? Guess. A town, thank you. Yeah. Morasheth. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who are they? Kings of Judah. Which you saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. What's that? Places, right? See what happened there? The Bible author situates Micah in a place and in a historical time period by dating him in relationship to the kings of Judah. That's the way the Bible typically does it. It doesn't do it here in Jonah. And in fact, there's no other proper names in Jonah apart from just Jonah. The king of Assyria is mentioned. The king of Assyria was the ruler of the world's greatest and most dangerous empire at the time. You don't think he had a name? You don't think the people knew his name? He was someone to be feared. But he doesn't even get a mention in this book. You might be saying, well, what about Jesus' mention of Jonah in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and Luke 11? Well, it's interesting that Jesus says that Jonah is a type or a symbol of his coming death and burial. The text that I read to you earlier. That's why I paused to read it. Jesus says that Jonah is a type or a symbol of his own coming death and burial. In other words, Jesus doesn't resolve this for us on how to interpret Jonah. 
So you have to go to the book itself. And when you do, you notice a very unique style. The style of this book is marked by satire. Satire. It makes fun of people by exposing their flaws, their foolishness, their stupidity. A contemporary form would be a political cartoon. Here's one of many that you could look at on the internet, but this one came kind of at the, at the change of administrations between the, our present president and our former president. And you see, because we understand what this is about, we can read this cartoon and get it. It's political commentary. It's satire. And other contemporary versions would be Saturday Night Live, the skits that go on there, Stephen Colbert, satire. Satire. Our culture has a lot of forms of satire. It's used as a form of criticism. And it works because the listener is in on the joke. We get it. Because we understand what it's pointing to. Some examples of satire in Jonah. Jonah is God's prophet, yet he's the worst character in the story. See, you even laughed. You, you, you kind of did a chuckle, a Christian chuckle. You know, like... Mm. And as God's messenger, the one who's supposed to be delivering God's message, he runs from God's directive. It's amazing. He sleeps during the storm while the pagans pray. And the pagan captain of the ship has to go wake him up and ask him to pray to his God. That's satire. Jonah remains unrepentant while the heathen respond to God with very little prompting, and even the animals repent. Cows, sheep, every type of animal repents. Have you ever seen an animal repent? I haven't. I've never heard of one doing that, nor have I wished to be around them when they do it either. I have no idea what that's about. But I mean, we, the fact is, I, I can read this and I can go, oh, I'm supposed to be serious because I'm a Christian, so I read that. I go, hmm, that must have happened. It's satire. Jonah praises God for his own deliverance from the fish, but then he turns right around and he's angry over Nineveh's deliverance. I want to be delivered, and I thank you, but I hate the fact that you delivered them. And then Jonah himself expresses a death wish after his mission is successful, and that Nineveh actually turns to God. Exaggeration fills this, this short little piece of writing, and it's used to, to increase satire. So you could almost see it, it's almost like a comic book. I think of the old Batman uh, series I grew up with as a kid, where it's, you know, when they started fighting Batman and Robin, it was Biff, Pow, you know, that, and those big, huge graphics came up when they were fighting. Some of you are nodding your head. Thank you for humoring me on that one. Uh, but I mean, if you've ever read comic books, things are you know, exaggerated. The figures are exaggerated. The action is exaggerated. And here we have exaggeration as well. The word great or huge is used 15 times. It's used 15 times in this short little book. Everything is huge. The storm is huge. The fish is huge. Nineveh is huge. The city is so huge, the writer says it takes three days to walk through it. That would be 50 to 60 miles. Now, I don't know how fast you walk. But later people, later people would recognize as they read this that that was exaggeration because Nineveh was actually only seven miles around. So it would have only taken a matter of hours 
to walk through this. But again, exaggeration to heighten the satire that the author wants us to be impacted by. Another example of exaggeration, a city with hundreds of thousands of people that are hostile to Israel and hostile to Israel's God, instantaneously and completely, without exception, the text says, everyone converts to God instantly. How does that happen? So when you let the author show you how to read this, it appears that satire and irony and exaggeration are all very intentional. The author doesn't intend to report a historical event. But it does not mean it's not rooted in history. Okay? Therefore, the mention of Jonah in 2 Kings 14.25 and Jesus' reference to Jonah. So I think it's important to remind ourselves that Jesus' parables are no less true because they did not happen. Right? Jesus' parables are no less true because they did not happen. And so it means that Jesus' parables and the narrative parable of Jonah are a type of literature designed to reveal the character of God and reveal a word from God to his people then and now. So the book of Jonah might be a narrative parable, but its message is still from God and it's still true. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? In the same way we read a parable and we'd say that did not actually happen, but it's still a message from God and it's still true for us today as we read it. So it's truth that we're called to believe and respond to. So my point in spending so much time on this today is simply this. It's to set the table for what we're going to be looking at. And to say that the author's style is as much a part of the message as the words themselves. And to ignore the style is to then miss the impact of the words when we read them. We're going to be reading a piece of literature that is marked by satire, exaggeration, and irony. And the author uses satire to remove our defenses, just as we look at a political cartoon or we watch Saturday Night Live, and we laugh because we get the joke, we get the irony, we get the exaggeration, we get the foolishness that's being pointed out, and the author draws us in with that humor, and then he holds up a mirror and he says, is it possible that you might see some of Jonah in yourself? And that's what we're going to do in the book of Jonah in the weeks to come.